We will be reading from Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 to 36. I'll be reading from the NIV. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waters because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick touch the edge of his cloak. And all were touched it, touched it, were healed. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the things I've been doing uh, this fall and uh, actually still doing and getting preparing for is I've been taking a class, a uh, coaching training uh, called Flourishing in Ministry uh, about coaching uh, pastors to health and wellness. And then I'm also getting ready to design and teach a class at another university uh, later in May called Flourishing in Ministry. So I've been learning a lot about the state of pastors today, and I want to share a few things that I'm learning, and then we're going to talk about that uh, as well. So here's the thing I've, we've learned. There's been research done out of Notre Dame and Duke Divinity School, and they've been doing research on pastors over long studies, over 20 plus years. And a couple of things they've learned is that pastors today need to have competency in 64 different skills. So they have to be able to have 64 different, be competent in 64 different things. Not only do they need to be competent in these 64 things, they need to move rapidly back and forth between those competencies. So for example, a pastor may meet with a grieving family to plan a funeral, and then next stop on their schedule will be a finance meeting talking about how to raise money in the church. Does that make sense? So those are two different competencies, right? And sometimes pastors have to switch quickly between those competencies. So imagine trying to go with being with a grieving family and then like reset yourself you know, and then go do something totally different, right? And so this is the state of, of pastors. The other thing that we've learned about pastoring 
<laughs> I've learned it as well, is something called role immersion. So a pastor is immersed in this role 24-7. So they don't ever get out of this role when they go shopping at the grocery store or in the streets. On, you know, so that's a part of the, being a community. pastor never gets to take off a uniform. Uh, and so there's this what's called role immersion. And so these expectations are high. So uh, one of the things I've heard uh, at many, many churches when they're looking for a pastor, and this church is looking for a new lead pastor, uh, one of the things that churches will do, they'll put together this great job description that somehow makes all those 64 competencies, put all those things on paper, right? And then they hand it to the pastor, the candidate or whatever, and they read through it together and they talk about it and, just, you know, and they interview and all that stuff. And usually somewhere in that interview or in that group or in that conversation, someone jokingly says, you know, basically we just need somebody to walk on water. That's all we need. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before? Like for anything, like, you know, oh, well, if we just had somebody who could walk on water, right? And so I thought it'd be good to take a look at somebody who tried to walk on water. <laughs> Peter, right? He tried to walk on water. He tried to do this, right? And um, it's always like kind of a joke when we talk about it among uh, the church, you know, that this pastor will somehow walk on water. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, I've even bought into that concept myself as a pastor uh, as well. So we'll talk about that. So let's take a look today at someone who tried to walk on water and it wasn't frozen. So just seeing if you're awake, just check in to see if you're awake. So here's a backstory of what's happening. So Jesus has just learned that his friend, one of his close friends, and his cousin, John the Baptist, has been killed by Herod. He gets news about this, and, and I imagine that, you know, Jesus is fully human, fully divine, so I imagine that he is, he is grieving both, both his divinity and his humanity. He's grieving his, the loss, right? And so he's grieving, and so he actually wants to get away from the crowds and from the disciples to be alone and spend some time with God, and, but immediately the crowds follow him, they surround him, they're, they have expectations for him. They, they want him to he, be healed. And so he meets with them. He meets their needs. And then at, towards the later in the day, they're hungry. So he feeds 5,000 of them, you know, this miracle of the loaves and the fishes. So he feeds them, you know, how many people here have to make dinner for a large crew on occasion? Like you got, and you're like, you're, you're tired. You're, you got all this going on. And then, oh, wait, I got to feed the, feed everybody here. Anybody, any cooks in the in the place. Nobody? Nobody cooks here? All right, that's why I thought. <laughs> so you know that feeling of like, oh, I've got to cook, right? And uh, so now Jesus has got to feed 5,000 people. Imagine the catering business that could have been started. So Jesus does this, and then finally, at the end of this day, at the end of all this, he finally says to his disciples, all right, I need you guys to get in the boat and cross over to Sea of Galilee. I'll meet you later. I need to go spend some time with God. I need to go up on the mountain. So I need some solitude. I need to be alone. I need to be with God. Because uh, he really noticed that he's been delaying his grief up until this point. And so then, some, after he prays, after he's experienced solitude, the disciples are in the boat. The winds are against the boat. The winds are churning up the waves. And Jesus, for whatever reason, we don't know why, he decides he needs to go be back with the disciples in this moment. And maybe he just is realizing that, hey, you know, I need to be with my, my friends because I'm still grieving. Like, maybe that was part of what was going on. I don't know. But he decides that the, sh the quickest way to get to them is a straight line. Because if, he, if, he, if he's going to meet them, if he's going to walk on land, he's got to go all the way around the, 
the Sea of Galilee to get to them. And I don't know what, maybe he just thought, you know, the quickest way for me to get to them, I'll just walk on water. Wouldn't that be cool? Hey, I need to get across the lake at Washington. I'll just go, go walk across it, right? So, so he does this. And so he's walking across the water. Now, here's the thing. From a biblical point of view, there's only one person that can walk on water. And it's God. If you go read some of the Old Testament lessons on this, go to Job, go to Isaiah, go to other places. The only person who can either walk on water or part water is God. So the fact that Jesus is walking on water towards the disciples is saying something about who he is. And notice that at the end of this whole event, they, what do they proclaim? They proclaim to him, you are the Son of God. They're saying, you are divine. You are God, right? And so this is a, him revealing who he is to them in this moment. Now, the, but when they see him, you can clearly see that they have no idea that this is Jesus, right? They're like, this is a, a, a ghost. This is an apparition. This is some kind of eerie figure. So they're scared. I mean, they're, they're, they think they're on a haunted lake right now. You know, they think something's weird going on. And so they're afraid. The wind's against them. All these things are going. And then here's what Jesus said. Just to, We heard this, but let's read it again. Jesus says to them, take courage. It is I. Now, that it is I is a, what we call in the Bible an I am statement. So when Moses asked God in his calling, who should I, who should I say sent me? God says, I am sent you. So this is an I statement. This is an I am statement. So what Jesus is reflecting the, the divinity in his statement. He says, don't be afraid. And then notice what Peter's response is. Lord, if it is you, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Like, command me. Like, because you're the one that has the authority over me, and if you tell me to come, I get to walk on water too, right? I could possibly walk on water. So I think he's hoping he's going to get to walk on water. I mean, how cool would that be, right? So now another way we could translate that, Lord, if it's you, by Peter is this. I think what Peter's really saying is, assuming it is you, because he's still not 100%. He's like, I'm going to assume it is you, Jesus, and then I'm going to, so if it is you, I assume it's you, will you tell me to come, right? So he's making an assumption here that it's not a ghost, that it's really Jesus, and that Jesus is expressing his divinity. So, you know, I I think back to when Heather and I were first discerning uh, to come to Seattle. We lived, uh, for those of you who don't know, we lived on the East Coast and in Maryland, and we got a call, and somebody said, would you pray about this? And we said, sure, we'll pray about it. <laughs> you know, no way, we're going to Seattle. So that was our first response. But then some things started to happen that made us go, you know, God, is this you? Are you asking this of us, right? And so we think, finally came to the conclusion it was God. Like, God was asking us to come to Seattle and serve first free. And uh, after that, then we are... are our conversation with God, our prayer with God changed to, okay, God, now assuming it is you, <laughs> right? Notice how we human, humanly do that, right? So assuming it is you, could you just give us some assurance, right, that it is, you know, that, that our assumption is correct? And so God did that. And so one of the things that Heather and I have been, um, been clear about, and one of the things that has been clear to us through this whole process is that God asked us to be here, and we answered the call. We came. We, we came to Seattle. 
and we were just, we just knew in that moment we needed to be obedient to God. We didn't know why, we didn't know how, we didn't know what was happening, and there are times in our lives where God speaks to us, and God encourages us, and, and, and we have to maybe say that to God, like, uh, God, is that you? Like, I, I'm going to assume it is you, right? And then we have to listen uh, and be obedient to God, and that's part of what Peter is trying to do. The other thing is happening for Peter is God is beginning to shape him as a leader in this moment. We often don't look at this moment in Peter's life as a formative moment, but Peter becomes the leader of the early church in Acts and at the end of the Gospels. So God, I believe, is shaping Peter, and actually Peter is revealing his, his wiring as a leader. I was listening to a talk by Dr. Rob McKenna. Uh, some of you may know Dr. Rob uh, and uh, former President David McKenna across the street here, but Dr. Rob said this, a leader goes first. That's a simple way of understanding leadership. Leadership, leaders are not the people who've got it all figured out, by the way, sometimes, right? Leader is simply the person who's willing to step out of the boat, the person who's willing to go first. That's leadership. So a leader is simply someone who goes first. Now, the, now the issue with leadership today, and it's happening today, maybe more under a microscope, is that when a leader succeeds, they get some of the credit. When they fail, they get all the blame. Did you hear that? So when a leader succeeds, they get some of the credit, and when they fail, they get most of the blame or sometimes all the blame. So this is a precarious place to be, right? It's a precarious place for pastoral leaders to be who are expected to walk on water like Peter and may fail to walk on water like Peter. So I thought about this like from the boat point of view. So let's go back into the boat because in some commentaries and some early church commentaries, they see the boat as the church and uh, a metaphor for the church. So let's go back into the boat. Let's, let's all put ourselves in the boat right now. We're watching Peter step out of the boat and try to be Jesus, try to walk on water. What are we thinking? Maybe I'll ask you, what are you thinking? You're in the boat, you're one of the disciples, you're watching Peter step out. What is your thought? I'm just going to open it up for, for a response. What do you think? What is he doing? What is he doing? Right. Is, is he off his rocker? Right. You know, is he, is he okay, you know, mentally, physically, like spiritually? Right. You know, what else is, are they maybe thinking? I could do that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I could do that. Let's see how it goes. And if he does it, I'm the next one out of the boat. Right. I'm, gonna, I'm lining up. Right. And I think about that. That's a possible response of a disciple. A disciple is watching somebody else try be, trying to be Jesus. So what Peter's doing is, is he's following Jesus. And then other people are like, oh, I want to follow too, right? So are the disciples lining up at the bow of the boat waiting for their turn? Because that, in my mind, would be the response of a disciple. Because they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, hey, I want to be where Jesus is and I want to work with Jesus and walk with Jesus too, right? Now, my imagination got away with me this, this week planning this sermon, and I thought of some other responses that maybe you didn't think about. Here are my other thoughts. Another response could have been that they were disappointed in Peter because he failed. Like, messed up, there goes Peter again, thinking he can do everything, right? And then he fails, falls on his face, and they're like, told you, told you so, right? 
Or could you imagine like Judas Iscariot, you know, Judas, the guy who betrays Jesus later, he's like, he goes over to Peter and he says, uh, good try, bro. You know, I, I really thought you were going to do it, but, you know, I just wanted to say, hey, good try. And then he walks away from Peter and goes over to other disciples and said, can you believe that guy? Right? He's always trying to show off. He's always about himself. His ego is so big. He needs to be humbled. I'm glad, it ha- I'm glad he failed. So there's that response of say one thing to the leader and go talk to everybody else in the boat about in another way, right? Or maybe Simon the zealot, you know, he's a, he's a passionate guy. He's a zealot, right? That's what zealots are. And he gets out his laptop computer and he puts the all caps lock on and he sends Peter an email. You know, I'm really disappointed in you, Peter. You know, if I had been out there on the water, I would have done it this way, and you should have tried this. Use your left foot more. You know, I don't know what he says, right? But that would have been another response, right? That the, the, the zealot would have responded. And then I think the other response, too, that leaders get is this response from, like, you know, you can imagine James and John going up to Peter. Like, that afternoon, they're on the sea, fire's going that night after all this happened, and James and John say, hey, Peter, can we kind of have a little conversation? Can we pull you aside here and they're talking to Peter, and they say, hey, Peter, you know, we thought it was really great, brave that you did that. And he says, but, uh, you know, we love you, brother, and we just want to point out a few things you could do differently in the future. So those are other responses. But think about this. There's the response of the disciples who say, I want to do it too. And then there's the response of the, dis- the other disciples who may have responded negatively to Peter's leadership. The difference is this. One response is focused on Jesus and the other response is focused on Peter. See, leadership in the church, pastoral leadership is about helping people follow Jesus, not the leader, right? And so that's the response I think God's looking for from all of us. We're all in this boat. We're all to be following Jesus together. We're all to be looking to Jesus and saying, how can I imitate Jesus? How can I be more like Jesus? And Peter is simply someone who's taken the first step. And others hopefully want to join him in doing that. And so our response to leadership in the church says a lot about where we're at in our own discipleship and maturity as disciples, right? Because simply all Peter is trying to do is trying to be, Peter's just trying to be Jesus. That's what he's trying to do. And uh, people are waiting for him to succeed or fail, right? And what does he learn from this, right? Well, he learns he's human. He's not divine. He's not Jesus. He he wasn't meant to walk on water. Jesus was meant to walk on water, right? So part of it is he's realizing his humanity and that he's not fully divine and fully human as Jesus is. And here's the, 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 the thing about pastoral leadership is that pastors, uh, men and women are called to lead the church and they're human beings. Not, they're, they're called to something holy while also being human. But they're not fully holy and they're not, and they are fully human, right? <laughs> so, so that's our, and as we look across the landscape of pastoral leadership in the past couple years, we see the scandals, we see the failures of, of high-profile leaders and it makes us want to take our eyes off Jesus, Right? But we were never meant to put our eyes on the leader. We were meant to put our eyes on Jesus and stay on Jesus, right? 
So the question, I think, of any pastoral leader today is, is this leader trying to be Jesus? Are they trying to follow Jesus? Are they doing it? They may not be perfect, but are they following Jesus? We need to know that. The other question I come up, come up against, and I wrestle with this, and you may have a different answer to this. Did Peter fail? Did Peter fail? It certainly seems to indicate from Jesus' response that he failed, right? He doubted. He took his eyes off Jesus. He looked at the wind. He looked at the waves. And he began to sink, it says. He, that's when he began to be in distress. And I thought about this, that, that what is, that this goes back to this idea that maybe Peter is failing so that God could shape him, right? See, here's the beautiful thing about God. God can take our failures and form us, you know? So uh, think about failure this way. Failure is the tilling the soil of sainthood. It's formative. And notice that Peter is one day going to lead the church, and so there are some leadership lessons he actually needs to learn. And we learn best not through success, but through failure, if you think about it. Some of our most formative moments as human beings is our failures, not our successes. And that's what God wants. God tills the soil of our hearts and our minds and our spirits. And so what do we learn? I want to just share with you what I learned from my failure. Because, you know, I have this expectation put sometimes that I need to walk on water. And to be honest with you, if you haven't noticed, I don't walk on water and I can't walk on water. I never will. I don't think I ever will be able to. So what do we learn from our failures, whether they're perceived or real? And I'm going to share with you my perception of my failure here. I know you didn't expect to hear that. They're like, what? And other people, even after the first service, they heard this, and they came to me, well, you didn't fail, and blah, 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 you know. And I totally understand that. So this is new information for you. It's not new information for me. So I'm going to explain why I think I failed, and it could be perception, not real. Uh, And what I learned. But the most important thing is not whether I failed or not, but I, what I hope you'll see in this is that we learn what I learned from failure, and I want you to know it's okay to embrace your failure. Like, it's okay, because I don't, did you hear that first song we, we, we sang, right? Did you hear, see the lyrics in that song? I didn't even notice it until we sang it today. It said, you know, what, we try to hide our failures, but we'll never get out of that grave if we keep hiding our failures, Right? God wants to release us from our failures and grow us from our failures. So just take what I'm saying right now in that sense. Does that, are you with me? Can I get a witness here? All right. So here's why I perceived that I failed as a leader of First Free. When I first came here, I came here, the church was in decline. Uh, the church was in a position, uh, we would call it a turnaround position. I still believe it is in a turnaround position. So we want to turn things around. We want to stabilize the church, get it healthy, so that we can then begin, so that it be, can become a growing, healthy church ag- again. And we often look back to, you know, 15 years ago when we did all these wonderful things and how church was growing. And so from a church consultant point of view, I'm coming at it like that. So I'm saying, so my role as the leader of First Free coming in here was to help the church turn around, to turn it back into a place of health 
and vi vitality, right? And so that's what, my, what, I wanted to, what I was hoping could do, and to really help people get on mission in the city, to love people, connect them to Jesus, serve the world, so that, that I, was the leader. I was the one that was to be helping us step out of the boat, and the leader goes first, right? So here's my sense of my own personal failure. I've served five churches in 29 years, so that's four churches that weren't first free. Those other four churches I went to in difficult situations, in difficult circumstances, challenging circumstances, and we turned them around or started them from scratch. And they grew and they grew healthy and God did wonderful things. And so when I was coming to Seattle to first church, I was thinking I could walk on water. I was thinking... It'll just, I, I've walked on water four times before, right? You hear this, and I'm just expressing my own confession of my own pride. Why, why not again? Can I do it again? Can I do it again? You notice the different, you notice the problem with that? I can't do it. God can. And that's one of the things I learned. So here's the thing. We learn humility when we fail. We learn humility. And that's right where God wants us. God doesn't need a bunch of prideful disciples, you know, that are running around thinking they're better than everybody else. God does not need that in the kingdom. God needs humble disciples. And so I learned humility. You know, what I learned was I can't do it. Like Peter, I learned I can't walk on water. And maybe I was never meant to walk on water. Maybe that's the point. Jesus is divine, not pastors. And so I needed to let God get in the driver's seat. And really, oftentimes, we would say to, you know, we would say in the church, like, we can't do this without the church. We can't do this without the other disciples in the boat. We can't do this alone, right? And so we know that we need God. And I think this is actually a valuable lesson for me because as I go and coach pastors and train pastors who are experiencing failure, I need to know that. I, I can't, because otherwise, what am I going to expect of them if I don't know failure? What am I going to expect of them? I'm going to expect them to walk on water. And that's not fair to them. So really, that's part of it. We need to be able to do that. So I think God has been preparing me for what I'm doing next through this. The other thing we learn is we learn our, 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 our limitations, right? That we are human, that we can't do everything. That See, the misconception in the church is that we think that if we just get the right leader, right? If we just get that leader that can walk on water, then the church will be great. And that's not true. That's a part of it. That's important. But it actually takes a whole church of leaders and disciples to do that, not just a solo, singular pastor. And so we actually, because pastors are limited and finite and they're human and we need to come together as a, as a body and we need that leader who will step out first, but we need other people to go with them and be willing to lean over the side rails of the boat and catch them when they fail and say, hey, look, well, we got you. <laughs> We're holding on to you. Let's get you back in the boat. Let's try again rather than saying, oh, we, we messed up, we failed, so let's just go back to what we were always doing before, right? And so that's, that's part of it. You know, 
The other thing is that we're not swimming in easy waters as, as, as a church, not just pastors. I was in a race, uh, the Mid-Atlantic uh, Xterra Championship in Richmond, Virginia. It's a triathlon. The first part of the triathlon is actually when you swim. And I, the first part of this swim was across the James River in Richmond, Virginia. And so when you're swimming in a river, you've got a current that is trying to push you downstream. And downstream is this waterfall, is that downstream from where you're swimming. So if you get swept downstream, you're going over this waterfall as a swimmer. And actually, a triathlete died a couple years ago in this same swim uh, on this same river. And so that's how dangerous the swim is. And so the, the, the issue is, is that when you're swimming, you're swimming across the river and you're trying to make a straight line across the river because that's the shortest way to go, A, B, right? We get on the island, run around the island, and then you would come, swim back across that river. So this is different. If you've ever, how many people have ever sw- swam in a pool or a lake, right? It's easy. You guys got it easy, by the way. I want you to imagine how you need to change your stroke and how you swim when you have a current constantly pushing against you. What do you think? Right, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I love it. Exactly right. So what you do when you swim is you actually have to be stronger on one side to pull yourself diagonally in that direction against the current so that as the current is pushing you, you're swimming in a diagonal way so that they balance each other out. Great. You're a geometry major, aren't you, right? So great answer. And that, here's the thing. We're not swimming in pools in, the, in this culture. We have this strong current, this strong wind pushing against the church constantly trying to get us off course. So what we need to do is learn how to swim differently within the current to keep going, right? So the church actually has to adapt the way it does ministry, and leaders need to adapt the way they lead ministries to face that current. So that's part of it, and we can't do it. Here's the thing. We need to do that together. We can't have leaders swimming one way and churches swimming another, we need to come together. Churches and leaders need to come together in the, in the way they swim. But here's the most important thing. If you take nothing else away from this message, here's what I want you to take away. Where, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus when Peter fails, when he sinks? Where is Jesus? Right by him, right? Notice that Jesus is right there. Like, I always imagine like Peter got two steps out of the boat and sank, right? Maybe he got farther than I thought. I don't know. But notice that wherever, whatever's happening, that Jesus is right where Peter is and grabs him. Maybe grabs him, pulls him up by the robe. I don't know. And I think I get this image that Jesus got him, right? And a lot of times we think, when I think sometimes I've misread this verse because I think about like Jesus is scolding Peter, like, oh, you doubted, shame on you. 
But we don't know the tone of voice Jesus spoke to him. We don't know the body language. But imagine that, that Jesus is actually holding him up on the water and says to him, you doubted, didn't you? Have some more faith next time. Like, like I got you. <laughs> like, I'm with you, right? So here's the most important thing that, you, that I've learned, and I hope that we all learn from our failure. We learn that Jesus is there for us. Jesus is right there with us, right? That's what Jesus says. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, right? And Peter needed to know that because there were going to be times in his future where he, this was not his first failure, by the way. He was going to fail again. But Jesus keeps coming back to him to be with him. And that's the most important thing. Because up until that moment, Peter just thought Jesus was a ghost. Jesus wasn't real until that moment. And it's actually when we sink and fail and we realize that Jesus is with us, that's the moment Jesus becomes real to us. And that's what Jesus hopes for. You know, I was, uh, this past year, I took, in June, I took a retreat with some other pastors. I went on a pastor's retreat and I was spending some time just reflecting on, on the church and the state of leadership, state of my leadership, my feelings of failure, bringing those feelings to God, talking again about what I'm called to do. So a real time of self-examination. I was out in Red, Rock, Red Rocks, Colorado, hiking up among the Red Rocks, and there's an ancient practice of, of sitting down, and in this ancient practice, what you do is you sit down and you imagine that Jesus is sitting next to you and you have a conversation with Jesus. So I was doing that, that was, my, that was my prayer time. So I'm sitting on this rock and I'm imagining that Jesus is sitting on the rock next to me and we're having a conversation about all these things and, and I remember, you know, imagining Jesus there with me. But more importantly than that, than that here's what Jesus said to me. You know, I'm bringing my failure, I'm bringing my stuff to God, I hope you get to do that. I'm bringing all this stuff to Jesus, and he says, Jesus just kind of looks at me and shakes his, kind of, in my mind, shakes his head and says, Matt, I don't need you to do anything for me. I I don't need you to succeed or fail. I just need you to be with me. I want you to be with me. And see, what Jesus was teaching me was, it's more important for me to be with Jesus and allow my leadership and my ministry to flow out of my relationship with Jesus instead of trying to do it without Jesus. Here's the thing about pastoral leadership. It's possible to lead without Jesus. It's possible to do ministry without being with Jesus. It's possible to do it under our own power rather than under God's power. Because here's the thing, we can't walk on water. And so here's what I'd ask you to do, church. Don't ask for a leader who can walk on water. Don't ask for another pastor who you think can walk on water. Ask for one who knows how to be with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are right there with us in our failures that we stumble, we make mistakes just like Peter in our walks with you. Sometimes we think we can do it all, that we don't need you, and then the moment we fail, oh, well, we need you now, God. But God, you want to be front and center in our lives. 
Jesus, you are with us in our failures. You are with us in our adversity. When we feel like we're sinking and the current is against us, Jesus, you are right there to pull us up. You want to be with us, and more than anything, you want us to be with you and to have a relationship with you. And I pray, we pray for anyone here this morning that has strayed in their relationship with you, that you would bring them back to you. And we pray and we bring our failures to this table of communion today. We all have our failures and those places where we feel like we failed or not done what's best or sinned or brokenness, whatever it is, Lord, we can bring it to this table today. And we're thankful that you are with us in those failures, that you want to redeem us and form us and shape us and call us forward to be your people. And so would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and cup at the table that they may truly be for us the body and blood and grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, that they would remind us, Jesus, that you are here, that you are with us, that we can be honest about our failures and bring them to you. And you will be with us, love us by grace. So Lord, as we come to this table today, pour your spirit of grace out in each of us today. And we pray that prayer that you have taught your disciples to pray, your people who follow you to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.